Section 2. Building a State in Apache Land by Charles Poston. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Early Mining and Filibustering. In 1855, when I arrived in Washington as an amateur delegate from the New Territory, the Gadsden Purchase did not attract much attention. They had something else to do. President Pierce, the most affable of presidents, was very polite and asked many questions about the new acquisition. The Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, promised to order an exploration of the Colorado River as soon as he could get an appropriation, and to send troops to the new territory as soon as they could be spared. During the winter, General Heitzelman came to Washington, and as the town was crowded and he could not find suitable accommodations, I had an extra bed put in my room at the National, and we messed together. It was an advantage to have an officer of the Army who had been in command at Yuma give information about the country and the association thus formed lasted through life. There was not much to be done in Washington, so I went over to New York, the seat of the Texas Pacific Railroad Company. This company had been organized under a munificent land grant from the state of Texas. The capital stock was $100 million. The scheme was to build a railroad from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean on the proceeds of land grants and bonds, and make the hundred millions of dollars stock as profit. That's one-tenth of one percent to be paid in for expenses and promotion money. President of this company is Robert J. Walker, Secretary of the Treasury under President Polk. Vice President, Thomas Butler King of Georgia, late collector of the port in San Francisco, my recent supervisor. Secretary Samuel Jaldon, late cashier of the United States Bank. Mr. Walker, the president of the company, received me at dinner at his mansion on Fifth Avenue, and my acquaintance with Thomas Butler King was renewed over sparkling vintages. This company had parceled the world out among its officers. Robert J. Walker was to have the financial field of Europe. Samuel Jaldon, the secretary, was to display his financial ability in New York and the Atlantic cities. Edward Conkling of Cincinnati was agent for the Mississippi Valley. Thomas Butler King was allotted the state of Texas and I, being the junior, was to have the country between the Rio Grande and the Colorado. I told them all I knew about the territory, and a great deal more, and enlarged upon the advantages that would accrue to the railroad company by an exploration of the new territory and the development of its mineral resources. They inquired how much it would cost to make the exploration. I replied that I would start with $100,000 if there was a million behind it. The company was organized with a capital of $2 million and shares sold in an average of $50. General Heitzelman was appointed president and I was appointed manager and commandant. The office was located in Cincinnati for the convenience of General Heitzelman who was stationed at Newport Barracks, Kentucky. William Wrightson was appointed secretary. As soon as the necessary arrangements were made, I started west on this arduous undertaking. The arms and equipments had been shipped to San Antonio, Texas, and I proceeded there to complete the outfit. San Antonio was the best outfitting place in the southwest at that time. Wagons, ambulances, mules, horses, and provisions were abundant, and men could be found in Texas willing to go anywhere. San Antonio, I met the famous George Wilkins Kendall, who advised me to go to New Bramfels, where I could find some educated German miners. And as he was going to Austin, I accompanied him as far as New Bramfels, and received the benefit of his introduction. There were plenty of educated German miners about New Bramfels, working on farms and selling lager beer, and they enlisted joyfully. The rest of the company was made up of frontiersmen, buckskin boys, who were not afraid of the devil. 
We pulled out of San Antonio, Texas on the first day of May, 1856, and took the road to El Paso, or Paso del Norte, on the Rio Grande, 762 miles by the itinerary. The plains of Texas were covered with verdure and flowers, and the mockingbirds made the night march a serenade. I carried recommendations from the War Department to the military officers of the frontiers for assistance, if necessary. The first military post on the road was Fort Clark, El Moro, and a beautiful location. The post was at that time under the command of the famous John Bankhead Magruder, whom I had known in California. Magruder had recently returned from Europe, bringing two French cooks, and as he was a notorious bon viant, it was not disagreeable to accept an invitation to dinner. After breakfast next morning, I went to take my leave of the officers, but Magruder said, Sir, you cannot go. Consider yourself under arrest. I replied, General, I am not aware of having violated any of the regulations of the Army. No, sir, but you are violating the rules of hospitality. You shall stay here three days, send your train on to the Pecos, and I will send an escort with you to overtake it. So I remained at Fort Clark three days in duress, and never had a prisoner of war more hospitable entertainment. Texas overflows with abundant provisions, if they only had French cooks. After a toilsome and dangerous march through Lippins and Comanches, we arrived on the upper Rio Grande at El Paso in time to spend the 4th of July. El Paso at this time was enjoying an era of commercial prosperity. Mexican trade was good, silver flowed in, in a stream. After recruiting at El Paso, we moved up to the crossing of the Rio Grande at Fort Thorne and prepared to plunge into Apache land. Camping the command on the Green Fringe Membres, I took five men and, with Dr. Steck and his interpreter, made a visit to the Apaches in their stronghold at Santa Rita del Cobre. There was an old triangular fort built by the Spaniards which afforded shelter. There were about 300 Apaches in camp, physically fine-looking fellows who seemed as happy as the day was long. The agent distributed two wagon loads of corn, from which they made uh, tin whiz, an intoxicating drink. Their principal business, if they have any, is stealing stock in Mexico and selling it on the Rio Grande. The mule trade was lively. They proved themselves expert marksmen, but I noticed always cut the bullets out of the trees, as they are economists in ammunition, if nothing else. Deer and turkeys were plentiful, and we feasted for several days in the old triangular fort and under the trees. Dr. Steck told the Apaches that I was a mighty big man, and they must not steal any of my stock nor kill any of my men. The chiefs said they wanted to be friends with the Americans and would not molest us if we did not interfere with their trade with Mexico. On this basis, we made a treaty and the Apaches kept it. I had a lot of tintypes taken in New York, which I distributed freely among the chiefs so that they might know me if we should meet again. Many years afterwards, an Apache girl told me they could have killed me often from ambush, but they remembered the treaty and would not do it. I have generally found the Indians willing to keep faith with the whites, if the whites will keep faith with them. After leaving the camp at the Membres, we crossed the Chiricahua Mountains and camped for noon on a little stream called the San Simon, which empties into the Gila River. We had scarcely unlimbered when the rear guard called out, Patches! and about a hundred came thundering down to the western slope of the mountain, well-mounted and well-armed. Their horsemanship was admirable, their horses in good condition, and many of them, comparison with silver mountain saddles and bridles, the spoil of Mexican foray. A rope was quickly stretched across the road, the ammunition boxes got out, and everything prepared for a fight. The chief was a fine-looking man named Alessandro, 
and as a fight was the last thing we desired, a parley was called when they reached the road. When asked what they wished, they said they wanted to come into camp and trade, that they had captives, mules, mescal, and so on. We told them we were not traders and had nothing to sell. They were rather insolent at this and made some demonstrations against the rope. I told the interpreters say that I would shoot the first man to cross that rope, and they retired for consultations. Finally, they thought better of it, or did not like the looks of our rifles and pistols, and struck off for their homes in the north. I had a stalwart native of Bohemia in the company who was considered very brave. When the attack was imminent, he was a little slow in coming forward, and I cried out somewhat angrily, Anton, why don't you come out? He replied, Wait till I light my pipe. And that Dutchman stalked out, with a rifle in his hand, two pistols on his sides, and a great German pipe in his mouth. The Apaches did not trouble us any more, and after crossing high mountains and wide valleys, we arrived on the Santa Cruz River and camped at the old mission church of San Xavier del Bac. Three leagues north of the mission church of San Xavier del Bac, Bac means water, is located the ancient and honorable Pueblo of Tucson. This is the most ancient Pueblo in Arizona and is first mentioned in Spanish history in the narrative of Castaneda, 1540. Spanish expedition of Coronado in search of gold stopped here a while and washed some gold from the sands of the Canyon del Oro on sheepskins. It is well known that the expedition drove sheep. The Spaniards from this experience, remembering the island of Colchis, named the place Tucson, Jason in Spanish. The ancient Nairo Pueblo has borne this name ever since without profound knowledge of its origin. The patron saint of Tucson is St. Augustine, and as it was now the last of August, the fiesta in honor of her patron saint was being celebrated. As we had a long march and a dry time, the animals were sent out to graze in charge of the Papago Indians living around the mission. Two weeks furlough was given the men to attend the fiesta, confess their sins, and get acquainted with the Mexican senoritas, who flocked there in great numbers from the adjoining state of Sonora. Music and revelry were continued day and night with very few interruptions by violence. The only disorder that I observed was caused by a quarrel among some Americans and the use of the infernal revolver. There were not more than a dozen Americans in the Pueblo of Tucson when we arrived, and they were not Methodist preachers. The town has grown with the country and now contains a population of nearly 10,000 people of many shades of color and many nationalities. First question to be settled was the location of a headquarters for the company. We had come a long way at considerable risk and expense, and fortunately without disaster. We were now encamped in view of the scene of our future operations and the exploration and settlement of a territory of considerably over a hundred thousand square miles was before us, and the destiny of a new state was an embryo. It would not be prudent to expose the lives of the men and valuable property we had hauled so far to the cupidity of the natives, and therefore a safe place for storage and for defense was the first necessity in selecting our headquarters. We had some 150 horses and mules, wagons, ambulances, arms, provisions, merchandise, mining materials, and moreover what we considered of inestimable value, the future in our keeping, and the proper location was a grave consideration. The Spaniards had located a presidio at the base of the Santa Rita Mountains on the Santa Cruz River, a stream as large and as beautiful as the Arno, flowing from the southeast and watering opulent valleys which had been formerly occupied and cultivated. The presidio was called Tubac, the water, 
Mexican troops had just evacuated the Presidio of Tubac, leaving the quarters in a fair state of preservation, minus the doors and windows, which they hauled away. The Presidio of Tubac was about ten leagues south of the Mission Church in San Xavier del Bac on the Santa Cruz River on the high road, Camino Real, to Sonora and Mexico. Consequently, we struck camp at the Mission San Xavier del Bac and pulled out for the Presidio of Tubac to establish our headquarters and future home. There was not a soul in the old Presidio who was like entering the ruins of Pompeii. Nevertheless, we set to work, cleaned out the quarters, repaired the corrals, and prepared to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. The first necessity in the new settlement is lumber, and we dispatched men to the adjacent mountains of Santa Rita to cut pine with whip saws, and soon had lumber for doors, windows, tables, chairs, bedsteads, and the primitive furniture necessary for housekeeping. The quarters could accommodate about 300 men, and the corrals were ample for the animals. The old quartel made a good storehouse, and the tower on the north, of which three stories remained, was utilized as a lookout. The beautiful Santa Cruz washed the eastern side of the Presidio, and fuel and grass were abundant in the valley and on the mountainsides. It was not more than a hundred leagues to Guaymas, the seaport of the Gulf of California, where European merchandise could be attained. There were no frontier custom houses at that time to vex and hinder commerce. In the autumn, in 1856, we had made the headquarters for the company of Tubac comfortable, laid in a store of provisions for the winter, and were ready to begin the exploration of the country for mines. When you look at the Santa Rita Mountains from Tubac, it seems a formidable undertaking to tunnel and honeycomb them for mines. Nevertheless, we began to attack with stout hearts and strong arms full of hope and enthusiasm. The mines in the Santa Rita Mountains had been previously worked by the Spaniards and Mexicans, as was evident by the ruins of Arastes and Smelters. Gold could be washed on the mountainsides, and silver veins could be traced by the discolored grass. As soon as it was known in Mexico that an American company had arrived in Tubac, Mexicans from Sonora and the adjacent states came in great numbers to work, and skillful miners could be employed from at 15 to $25 a month in rations. Sonora furnished flour, beef, beans, sugar, barley, corn, and vegetables at moderate prices. A few straggling Americans came along now and then on the pretense of seeking employment, when questioned on that delicate subject, they said they would work for $10 a day in board, that they got that in California, and would never work for less. After staying a few days at the company's expense, they would reluctantly move on, showing their gratitude for hospitality by spreading the rumor that the managers at Tubac employed foreigners and greasers and would not give a white man a chance. They were generally worthless, dissipated, dangerous, low-white trash. Many Mexicans that had been formerly soldiers at the Presidio of Tubac had little holdings of land in the valley and returned to cultivate their farms, in many cases accompanied by their families. By Christmas 1856, an informal census showed the presence of fully a thousand souls, such as they were in the valley of Santa Cruz in the vicinity of Tubac. We had no law but love, no occupation but labor, no government, no taxes, no public debt, no politics. It was a community in a perfect state of nature. As syndic under New Mexico, I opened the Book of Records, performed the marriage ceremony, baptized children, and ran the divorces. Sonora has always been famous for the beauty and gracefulness of its senderitas. The civil wars in Mexico and the exodus of the male population from northern Mexico to California had disturbed the equilibrium of population, till in some pueblos the disproportion was as great as a dozen females to one male. And in the genial climate of Sonora, this anomalous condition of society was unendurable. Consequently, the senderitas and grass widows sought the American camp on the Santa Cruz River. 
when they could get transportation and wagon call provisions, they came in state. Others came on the hurricane deck of burrows, and many came on foot. All were provided for. Mexican senoritas really had a refining influence on the frontier population. Many of them had been educated at convents, and all of them were good Catholics. They called the American men Los Goddamas and the American women Las Camisas Colorados. If there is anything that a Mexican woman despises, it is a red petticoat. They are exceedingly dainty in their underclothing, wear the finest linen they can afford, and spend half their lives over the washing machines. The men of northern Mexico are far inferior to women in every respect. This secretion of female population added very much to the charms of frontier society. The Mexican women were not by any means useless appendages in camp. They could keep house, cook some dainty dishes, wash clothes, sew, dance, and sing. Moreover, they were expert at cards and divested many a miner of his week's wages over a game of monte. As of called day of Tubac, under the government of New Mexico, I was legally authorized to celebrate the rights of matrimony, baptize children, grant divorces, execute criminals, declare war, and perform all the functions of the ancient El Cadi. The records of this primitive period are on file in the recorder's office of the Pueblo of Tucson, Pima County. Tubac became a kind of Gretna Green for runaway couples from Sonora, as the priest there charged them $25, and the called day of Tubac tied to not grant it and gave them a treat besides. I have been marrying people and baptizing children at Tubac for a year or two and had a good many godchildren named Carlos or Carlotta according to gender and began to feel quite patriarchal when Bishop Lane sent down Father Mashbrook, vicar apostolic of New Mexico to look after the spiritual condition of the Arizona people. It required all the sheets and tablecloths of the establishment to fix up a confessional room and we had to wait till noon for the blessing at breakfast. The worst than all that my comadres, who used to embrace me with such affection, went away with their rebosos over their heads, without even a friendly salutation. It was we triste in Tubac, and I began to feel the effects of the ban of the church, when one day after breakfast, Father Mashburn took me by the arm. A man always takes you by the arm when he has anything unpleasant to say, and said, my young friend, I appreciate all you've been trying to do for these people, but these marriages you have celebrated are not good in the eyes of God. I knew there would be a riot on the Santa Cruz if this ban could not be lifted. The women were sulky, and the men commenced cursing and swearing, and said they thought they were entitled to all the rights of matrimony. My strong defense was that I had not charged any of them anything, and had given them a marriage certificate with a seal on it, made out of a Mexican dollar and had given the treat and fired off the envy. Still, although the Pope of Rome was beyond the jurisdiction of even the Alcalde of Tubac, I could not see the way open for a restoration of happiness. At last I arranged with Father Mashbrook to give the sanction of the church to the marriages and legitimize the little Carloses and Carlotas with holy water, and it cost the company about $700 to rectify the matrimonial situation in Santa Cruz. An idea that it was lonesome at Tubac would be incorrect. One can never be lonesome who is useful, and it was considered at the time that the opening of mines, which yielded nothing before, the cultivation of land, which lay fallow, the employment of labor, which was idle, and the development of the new country, were meritorious undertakings. The table of Tubac was generously supplied with the best the market afforded, besides venison, antelope, turkeys, bear, quail, wild ducks, and other game we obtained through Guamas a reasonable supply of French wines for Sunday dinners and the celebration of feast days. 
It is astonishing how rapidly the development of mines increases commerce. We had scarcely commenced to make silver bars, current with the merchant, when the plaza at Tubat presented a picturesque scene of primitive commerce. Pack trains arrived from Mexico loaded with all kinds of provisions. The rule was to purchase everything they brought, whether we wanted it or not. They were quite willing to take in exchange silver bars or American merchandise. Sometimes they preferred American merchandise. Whether they paid duties in Mexico was none of our business. We were essentially free traders. Winter was mild and charming, very little snow and only frost enough to purify the atmosphere. It would be difficult to find in any country of the world, so near the sea, such prolific valleys fenced in by mountains teeming with minerals. The natural elements of prosperity seemed concentrated in profusion seldom found. In our primitive simplicity, we reasoned that if we could take ores from the mountains and reduce them to gold and silver with which to pay for labor and purchase the productions of the valleys, a community could be established in the country independent of foreign resources. The result will show the success or failure of this utopian scheme. The usual routine at Tubac, in addition to the regular business of distributing supplies to the mining camps, was chocolate or strong coffee the first thing in the morning, breakfast at sunrise, dinner at noon, and supper at sunset. Sunday was the day of days at Tubac as the superintendents came in from the mining camps to spend the day and take dinner, turning in the afternoon. One Sunday we had a fat wild turkey weighing about 25 pounds. One of my engineers asked permission to assist in the cocina. It was done to a charm. It is stuffed with pine nuts, which gave it a fine flavor. As we had plenty of horses and saddles, we galloped to the old mission of San Jose de Turna Tecori, one league south of the Santa Cruz River, afforded exercise and diversion for the ladies, especially on a Sunday afternoon. The old mission was rapidly going to ruin, but the records show that it formerly supported a population of 3,500 people from cultivation of the rich lands in the valley, raising cattle, and working the silver mines. The Santa Cruz Valley had been and it could apparently again be made an earthly paradise. Many fruit trees yet remain in the gardens of the old mission church, and the Campo Santo walls were in a perfect state of preservation. The communal system of the Latin races was well adapted to this country of oases and detached valleys. Caesar knew nearly as much about the governing machine as the sachem of Tammany Hall, or the governor of Mexico. At least he enriched himself. In countries requiring irrigation, the communal system of distributing water has been found to produce the greatest good for the greatest number. The plan of a government granting water to corporations to be sold as a monopoly is an atrocity against nature, and no deserving people will long submit to it. The question will soon come up whether the government has any more right to sell the water than the air. In the spring of 1857, a garden containing about two acres was prepared at two back and irrigated by a canal from the Santa Cruz River. By the industry of a German gardener with two Mexican assistants, we soon produced all vegetables, melons, etc. that we required, and many a weary traveler remembers, or ought to remember, the hospitality of the two-back. We were never a week without some company, and sometimes had more than we required. But nobody was ever charged anything for entertainment, horseshoeing, and fresh supplies for the road. Hospitality is a savage virtue, and disappears with civilization. As the ores in the Santa Rita Mountains did not make a satisfactory yield, we turned our explorations to the west of the Santa Cruz River, and soon struck a vein of Pentecue, silver copper grant, that yielded from the grassroots $7,000 a ton. This mine was named in honor of the president of the company, Heitzelman, which in German mining lore is also the name of the genius who presides over mines. 
The Silver Bow Universe expenses were through about 50%, with ships via Guamas to San Francisco were brought from 125 to 132 cents per ounce for the Asiatic market. Silver bars form a rather inconvenient currency and necessity required some more convenient mediums. We therefore adopted the Mexican system of bulletas. Engravings were made in New York and paper money printed on pasteboard about 2 inches by 3 in small denominations. 12 and 1 half cents, 25 cents, 50 cents, $1, $5, $10. Each bulletta had a picture by which the illiterate could ascertain its denomination. These are 12 and 1 half cents a pig. 25 cents a calf, 50 cents a rooster, $1 a horse, $5 a bull, $10 a lion. With these bolletas, the hands were paid off every Saturday, and they were currency at the stores and among the merchants of the country and in Mexico. When a run of silver was made, anyone holding tickets could have them redeemed in silver bars or in exchange on San Francisco. This primitive system of greenbacks worked very well. Everybody holding bolletas was interested in the success of the mines and the whole community was dependent on the prosperity of the company. They were all redeemed. Mines form the bank of nature and industry puts the money in circulation to the benefit of mankind. In the autumn of 1857 a detachment from the regiment of first dragoons arrived in the Santa Cruz Valley for the purpose of establishing a military post and for the protection of the infant settlement. The officers were Colonel Blake, Major Stein, and Captain Ewell. The first military post was established at Calaveras, and the arrival of the officers made quite an addition to the society on the Santa Cruz. Incident to the arrival of the military on the Santa Cruz was a citizen's train of wagons laden with supplies. Twelve wagons of twelve mules each, belonging to Santiago Hewell of New Mexico. While he was camped at Tubac, I inquired the price of freight and learned it was fifteen cents a pound from Kansas City. I inquired what he would charge to take back a freight of ores, and he agreed to haul them from the Heitzelman mine to Kansas City in a steamboat for twelve and one half cents a pound. And I loaded his wagon with ores and rawhide bags that come to the wagon. This was the first shipment of ores in a pretty long haul. Upon arrival of these ores in the States, they were distributed to different cities for examination and assay, and gave the country its first reputation as a producer of minerals. The average yield in silver was not enormous, as the ores contained a great deal of copper, but the silver yield was about $1,500 to the ton. In December 1856, I purchased for the company the estate of La Arbach, or Arivaca, as it is called by Americans. This place is a beautiful valley encompassed by mountains containing only a few leagues of land. It was settled by Augustine Ortiz, a Spaniard, in 1802, and title obtained from the Spanish government. The ownership and occupation descended to his two sons, Thomas and Ignacio Ortiz, who obtained additional title from the Mexican Republic in 1833, and maintained continuous occupation until 1856, when they sold to the company for a valuable consideration. The validity of the title has been denied by the United States, notwithstanding the obligations of the treaty, and is now pending before the United States Land Court, with the prospect of an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, with a fair prospect of the ultimate loss of the property. The company conveyed the property with all mines and claims in Arizona to the writer on the 2nd January 1870, the Woeful Heritage. In the early months of 1857, everything was going well in the Santa Cruz Valley. The mines were yielding silver bullions by the most primitive methods of reduction. Farmers were planting with every prospect of a good crop. Immigrants were coming into the country and taking up farms. Merchants were busy in search of the almighty dollar or its representative. 
The only disturbing element in the vicinity was a little guerrilla war going on in Sonora between two factions for the control of the state government. Guadara was the actual governor, and it had been so for many years, during which time he had accumulated a handsome fortune in lands, mills, mines, merchandise, livestock, and fincas. He was a sedate and dignified man, much respected by the natives, and especially polite and hospitable to foreigners. Mosquiera was an educated savage without property or position, and naturally coveted his neighbor's goods. Consequently, a revolution was commenced to obtain control of the governorship of the state, and just the same as when King David sought refuge in the caves of Abdullam, all who were in debt, all who were refugees, all who were thieves, and all who were distressed, joined Pesquiera to rob Gudar. This is all there was, or ever is, to Mexican revolutions. On the discovery of gold in California, many Mexicans went to Sonora to California and remained there. Among these was one Ayanta of Manila descent, married to a native of Sonora, who migrated to California with a large family of girls and boys in 1850, and had a bank and Mexican agency on the northwest corner, Clay and Montgomery Streets, where there was the usual sign, Se Compra Oro, upstairs. The girls of the Ayanta family grew to womanhood and carried the beauty and graces of Sonora to a good market. They all married Americans and married well. As Helen of Sparta caused the Trojan War, and many eminent women have caused many eminent wars, there was no reason why the Ayanta women should not take part in the little revolution going on in their native state, Sonora. Her husbands could then become eminent men and annex the state of Sonora to the United States and become governors and senators. It was a laudable ambition on the part of the Ayanta women, and their husbands were eminently deserving. In fact, their husbands were already the foremost men in Californian political position. One of them had been a prominent candidate for the United States Senate, and the others had occupied high position in federal and state service, and were highly respected among their fellow citizens. In this state of affairs, the eldest brother, Augustine, was dispatched to Sonora to see what arrangements could be made with Pesquiera if the Americans would come from California and help Mouse with our. Pesquiera was in desperate straits and agreed whatever was necessary, the substance of which was that the Americans should come with 500 men, well-armed, assist him in ousting Gudar and establishing himself as governor of Sonora. After that, the Americans could name whatever they wanted, in money or political offices, even to the annexation of the state, which was at that time semi-independent of Mexico. Augustine, the envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary, returned to California with the agreement in writing, and the Americans immediately began to drum up for recruits. But the prosperity of California was so great that but a few could be persuaded to leave a certainty for an uncertainty. Americans of California actually started for Sonora with less than 50 men, with vague promises of recruits by sea. The records of the ferryman on the Colorado River show that they crossed the river with only 42 men and a boy. With this meager force, these infatuated and misguided men pushed 132 miles across the barren desert to the boundary line of Mexico at Sonoya, Cove Creek, where there is a little stream of water struggling for existence in the sands. At the Sonoda, the invaders were met by a proclamation from Pesquiera, forwarded through Redondo, the prefect of Altar, warning them not to enter the state of Sonora. The men had resolved on destruction, reason is useless, and they paid no attention to the order, and crossed the boundary line of Mexico with arms and in hostile array. When they reached the vicinity of Altar, they diverged from the main road to the west and took the road to Caborca. The only possible reason for this movement is that they may have expected reinforcements by sea as Caborca is the nearest settlement to a little port called Liberdale, where small ships could land. 
Needless as it may, no reinforcements ever came, and this little handful of Americans soon found themselves hemmed in at the little town of Caborca without hope or succor. They were the very first gentlemen of the state, mostly of good families, good education, and good prospects in California. What human demon ever induced them to place themselves in such position, God only knows. Many of them left their wives and families in California, and all of them had warm friends there. Esquire issued a bloodthirsty proclamation in the usual grandiloquent language of Spain, calling all patriotic Mexicans to arms to exterminate the invaders and to preserve their homes. The roads fairly swarmed with Mexicans. Those who had no guns carried lances. Those who had no horses went on foot. The Borca was soon surrounded by Mexicans, and the 42 Americans and one little boy took refuge in the church on the east side of the plaza. This proved only a temporary refuge. An Indian shot a lighted arrow into the church and set it on fire. Americans stacked arms and surrendered. My God, had they lost their senses? These 42 American gentlemen who had left their wives, children, and friends in California a month or two before, under a contract with Pesquier, were butchered like hogs in the streets of Caborca, and neither God nor man raised hand to stop the inhuman slaughter. They had not come within two hundred miles of my place, and nobody could have turned them from their purpose if they had. Many of them were old friends and acquaintances in California, and their massacre cast a gloom over the country. There was only one redeeming act that ever came to my knowledge, and I know it to be true. When Pesquera's order to massacre the invaders were read, Gabalanda, second in command, swore he would have nothing to do with it, and mounting his horse, swung the little boy Evans behind him and galloped away to Altar. Gavilanda carried him to Guaymas, from where he was afterwards sent to California. It has been stated that corpses were left in the street for the hogs to eat, but the curate of Caborca assured me that he had trench dug and gave them a Christian interment. I never saw him converse with any of the leaders, but a detachment came up the Gila River to Tucson and Tubac, a listening recruit, but could only raise twenty-five or thirty men. The invasion was generally discouraged by the settlers on the Santa Cruz. When they passed by support on their way to join the main body, I remember very well the advice of old Turtle Douglas, a veteran of the Mexican Revolution. He said, Boys, unless you carry men enough to whip both sides, never cross the Mexican line. I was at Rivica when the Santa Cruz continued to return, badly demoralized, wounded, naked, and starving. The place was converted into a hospital for their relief with such accommodations as could be afforded. Pesquiero was well aware of the adage that dead men tell no tales. Crab was beheaded and his head carried in triumph to Pesquiero, converted in a keg of mezcal with the savage barbarity of the days of Herod. The contracts which would have compromised Pesquiero with the Mexican government were destroyed by fire. So ended the crab expedition, one of the most ill-fated and melancholy of any in the bloody annals of Mexico. The result of this expedition, commonly called crabs, was that the Mexican government laid an embargo upon all trade with this side of the line and business of all kinds was paralyzed. Under these circumstances, I crossed the desert on mule back to Los Angeles with only one companion and went to San Francisco to take a rest. End of section 2